0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making theology central. Good morning, everyone. It is Saturday, May the 21st, 2022. If you listen to the last live broadcast, you know why I am stressing the date, but I need to stress it again. It is Saturday, May the 21st, 2022, and it is currently 11.19 a.m. Central Time, all right? May the 21st, 2022, 11.19 a.m. Central Time. The reason I am stressing that date, and I'm broadcasting to you live from Abilene, Texas, but I'm stressing all of that because what we are going to do in this episode is we're going to continue, well, a little bit of time travel, right? Right? In our last episode, we got in a time machine, and we went back to May the 21st, 1922, not to Abilene, Texas, but to New York City, and we walked into a church in New York City, and we sat in a pew, May the 21st, 1922, and we heard a sermon that many have said, Divided America a very significant sermon in the history of the Christian church so we went back and in a sense listened to it i read it we didn't finish the sermon we stopped so here in a minute we're going to go back to new york city may the 21st 1922 it's just it's it's just i'm just wrapping my mind around it, that on this very day on this very day 1922 Someone was preaching a sermon that was going to divide America and become very important in the history of the Christian church, and here we are in 2022, and I'm now being able to talk to people around the world, well, with a microphone and a laptop. It's amazing how much has changed, but in other ways, it's sad how much hasn't changed. But are you ready? Are you ready for a little bit of church history today? Are are you ready? Let's go back. To New York City. Let me just, let me, I, I could just grab the sermon and we could just pick up where we stopped, but I know new people will be listening to part two who did not listen to part one. So let me just get everyone caught up. Here we go. On May the 21st, 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick fired a shot across the bow of fundamentalist Presbyterianism with his sermon, Shall the fundamentalist win? So that's the name of the sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And he and he and it sits. it was a shot heard around the world, not just in the Presbyterianism, I think around around the world, or at least maybe here in the United States of America. I don't know. There's probably different ways we can uh classify it, but let's say this the shot was definitely heard. Again, the person's name, Harry Emerson Fosdick, May 21st, 1922. He preached a sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? It was delivered at First Presbyterian Church in New York City. If you're in New York City, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming First Presbyterian Church is probably still standing. Go to First Presbyterian Church in New York City today. Just go stand in front of it. Take a picture. Send it to me at newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. If anyone is in the New York City area, please go take a picture of that church right now, you don't have to put yourself in the picture, but I would love to see that church as it looks right now, May the 21st, 2022, because inside that building, if it's the same building, I don't know the history of the building, but let's see it's the same building inside that building on this very day in 1922, a sermon was being preached that we're still talking about all of these years later because of its historical significance. So it would be a cool thing to do if you're anywhere near New York City. Today is the day to take a road trip, right? Get in a car, go there immediately, all right? If you have some uh, some some ability to get on an airplane, go, go go to New York City today, get in a taxi, go grab an Uber, whatever, get down to First Presbyterian Church in New York City because it was on this day, May the 21st, May the 21st on this day in 1922 that Harry Emerson Fosdick, well, fired a shot heard all around Christianity. Some saying it was a sermon that divided America. But basically, uh, the sermon was delivered at First Pres- Presbyterian Church in New York City and it accused fundamentalists of being essentially illiberal and intolerant, all right? Now, in part one, when I originally read that, I read it as of being essentially liberal and intolerant uh, because I had the iPad laying down instead of holding it in my hand. So I'm just glancing down at the words, like I'm looking at the microphone, just glancing down. And well, I just saw liberal and intolerant. And I should have realized that liberal, well, I don't know. In, In 2022, sometimes those who claim to be liberal are very intolerant. So maybe I was just reading it through the lens of someone living in 2022. A lot of people are like, we're liberal. Now we want you banned from Twitter and we want you silenced and we want you, you know, destroyed. So sometimes people who are literal liberal are very intolerant in 2022. But the what he was accusing the fundamentalists of was being illiberal and intolerant. Fosdick minced no words in defending the new modern theology and disputing traditional doctrines. And here's the doctrines that he's going after the virgin birth of Christ, the inerrancy of the Bible, Christ's substitutionary atonement. For some weird reason, I had problems saying that word in part one. Uh, this, this sermon is unusual in that it, re, it regards uh, this sermon, is unusual in that uh, few Protestant pastors in the early 20s openly stated modernist doctrines to their often more conservative parishioners. Now in response, Presbyterian fundamentalists forced Fosdick to resign his pastorate in order to escape a formal trial in 1924. The incident made Fosdick a martyr to the liberal faction of mainline Christianity, but he quickly found a new home at Park Avenue Baptist Church, and he found a new friend, John D. Rockefeller, Jr., all right there has to be a conspiracy theory there, right i mean we have the rockefellers we we have to have a conspiracy theory okay but no we won't go there we won't call up alex jones right now but we are going to travel back to may 21st 1922 and we're going to pick up the sermon where he has left off now i'm not going to review everything or where we're not where he left off where i left off he 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 preached it in one and in, in just one sermon it's taking us two parts because, well, I'm trying to analyze it. But let me just try to give you basically what he's arguing. He's arguing that, hey, there's all this new knowledge that has, aris- all this new knowledge has arisen about biology, origins, everything, history, religion, textual manuscripts, just all this new knowledge has made itself available, and he views that new knowledge as almost being a revelation from God, that it comes from God. And so he says we have to basically look to to what we think Christianity is, look to the Bible through the lens of the new knowledge. Whatever doesn't uh, basically work with this new knowledge needs to be thrown out of Christianity or the Bible. That's basically his approach, where the fundamentalists are like, no, 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 no. We're going to look at the new knowledge through the lens of the Bible, and whatever doesn't agree with the Bible, we're going to throw it out. So you already have these two very differing approaches to Christianity. But Fosdick, the way he wants to work it is like, hey, hey, guys, 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 we live in America, right? Right? The land of the free. Now, he wouldn't say it this way. I'm paraphrasing just for summary purposes. He would say, we live in in America, the land of the free. You can believe what you want. I believe what I want. Christianity is big enough. Can't we all just get along? I don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. I don't believe in the substitutionary atonement. I don't believe in the virgin birth being a historical reality. What's the problem? I can't, I believe what I want, and you believe what you want. And the fundamentalists are like, No, you're not a part of Christianity. You're not a Christian. You're not welcome in the church. Get out. And and Fosdick is like, that's intolerant. That's ill that's illiberal. That's not right. And we have to take a stand against it. Right? That's that that's that's it in a nutshell where we are. We've reached the part of the sermon where he's basically kind of in a sense saying, hey, Here's why you don't have to necessarily believe in the virgin birth. I'm just going to go back here, um, and we'll just start right here in the sermon. Are you ready? I think that gets everyone caught up. I took nine minutes. I think that's everyone caught up. So, all right, imagination time. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Now, if you're in New York City, okay, hurry up and get down to the church, and you can stand there with, with, you know, headphones on, right, AirPods on, whatever you use, and you can just look at the church. And imagine what it must have been like May, May 21st, 1922. All right, man, that would be so cool. If I lived in New York City, I would, I would want to be doing this podcast like right in front of the church. Or I could ask the church if I could do the podcast from within the church. That would be so awesome. But I'm in Texas, okay, so I'm not there. But all right, but imagine wherever you are right now, imagine. Okay, imagine New York City, 1922. Imagine the church. You walk in, we sit in the pew, kind of imagine the feel of the pew. Look around, you see everyone, you know, with the attire of 1922. There we are. Okay, here comes Fosdick. He walks up to the pulpit. And he begins to preach this sermon that's going to be, I don't know how shocking it was to the people in the pew. that That's what I think, I thought that's what I would love to see. How shocking was it to the people in the pew? The people walking out, because it seems that the typical way it works is that the pastors, in many cases, were far more liberal than the parishioners. And so they had to bring in their liberal liberalism in more of a subtle, secret way. Lawsick is like, good morning. I'm I'm going to slap you in the face, and we're going after. We're, we're, I'm going to I'm going to let you know about my li, my liberal modernist doctrine. So it would be interesting to just see. I would love to know how, what the people were saying when they walked out, but I can't obviously go back. But you can tell. I love history. I always love to to imagine what it was like there. You know, uh, I grew up here in Texas, and my mother was from San Antonio, so we went to San Antonio. Uh, every year every year and she always took us there right about the time um, of when the alamo occurred right the what 13 day siege of the alamo i think it was 13 days and i i was just captivated by the alamo i mean i was so like there was just something about it and i would just sit there as a kid and just try to imagine okay all right where were the walls okay where was the walls okay there's the river the what's called the river walk it's across the street from the alamo you take these steps down Okay, but so the, the walls would have been that would have been all the way across. The, so I'm trying to imagine like where the buildings where the city is now. What it would have looked at like, and okay, trying to imagine what the the, the forces of Santa Ana what they would have looked like coming in, and just try. I, I just was just walking into the Alamo it was just like I could just transport myself to what it, what what it was. And whenever my parents took me to every historical site in the state of Texas and every historical marker we had to stop and read so history was a big deal to me so it, when i became a christian church history became a big deal to me so in this case i'm just trying to imagine may 21st 1922 what it would have been like what it would have been like and here we are may the 21st 2022 talking about it but let's go back to the sermon so you're imagining you're on the you're sitting in the pew can you fill the pew okay here we go you ready fosdick is speaking now, just imagine that we, we didn't interrupt the sermon. Just imagine that we've still been listening. And now he's turning his attention to the virgin birth of Christ. And he says these words, and I quote, We may well begin with the vexed and mooted question of the virgin birth of our Lord. I know people in the Christian churches, ministers, missionaries, uh, laymen, devoted lovers of the Lord and servants of the gospel, who alike as they are in their personal devotion to the Master, hold quite different points of view about a matter like the virgin birth. So, what he wants to say is, hey, I know all these godly people and they hold different views about the virgin birth. And if they can be godly, well, then you couldn't say it's wrong not to hold the virgin birth. Look at their godliness. See, their argument is, look at how godly they are. If they're godly, they couldn't be godly if the virgin birth was a, a required doctrine. So we should not make it a required doctrine. That is kind of the argument he's made. Look at how godly these people are who don't hold to the virgin birth. Here, for example, is one point of view that the virgin birth is to be accepted as historical fact it actually happened. There was no other way for a personality like the master to come into this world except by a special biological miracle. He's like, here's one view. There's some people out there, there's no way. And it's just weird that they, he says that the personality like the master to come into the world that, wait, we're not talking about the personality of the master. We're talking about the eternal son of God, second person of the Trinity. Like, it's just really weird the way he says that, but he's like, here's this view out there that they're like, it's a historical fact and it was a special biological miracle. That is one point of view and many are the gracious and beautiful souls who hold it. Hey, there's beautiful and gracious people who hold to the virgin birth as being a literal historical fact, but wait, but wait, 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 wait. There's beautiful, godly people who, who in a sense live just like Christ who don't believe in the virgin birth. So then, who are we to condemn it? Who are we to say that it has to be one way versus another? That that was Fosdick's argument on May the twenty first, nineteen twenty two. He goes on to say, but side by side with them in the evangelical church is a group equally. Oh, or, or see, if see here. Um, but so there's that side who who there's the side who believes that to be a historical fact, and he says there's many gracious and beautiful souls, but right by side them within the evangelical church is a group of equally loyal and reverent people who would say that the virgin birth is not to be accepted as a historical fact. So far from thinking that they have given up anything vital in the New Testament's attitude towards Jesus, these Christians remembered that the two men who contributed most to the church's thought of the divine meaning of the Christ were Paul and John, Who never even distantly allude to the virgin birth? So Fosdick's argument was: Wait a minute, wait a minute. There's people who don't hold to the historical truth of the virgin birth. They're godly, and they're not giving up anything significant in the New Testament because Paul and John, who contributed a large, you know, large the largest section of the New Testament, they they didn't even distinctly allude to the virgin birth. So if John and Paul didn't allude to the virgin birth well then they're not giving up anything vital in the New Testament so it's perfectly okay if they give up the historical truthfulness of the virgin birth that's fosdick's argument again on may the 21st 1922 now he continues here I continue to quote fosdick here we go here in the Christian here in the Christian churches are these two groups of people and the question all right here we go here in the Christian churches are these two groups. So he says, within the Christian church, there's these two groups who hold to the historical accuracy and truthfulness of the virgin birth and those who say, no, it was not a historical factual thing, right? So there's are these two groups of pe- uh, groups of people and the question, which the fundamentalists raise is this. So here's what the fundamentalists say. Shall one of them throw out the other, the other out? So the fundamentalist is like, no, look, you don't hold to the historical teaching of the virgin birth of Christ being a literal thing. You're done. You're out. You can't be a Christian and reject that. Now, this is what Fosdick, in, in, in a sense, responds to this idea that they should be thrown out. Has intolerance any contribution to make to this situation? He's like, what What is being intolerant going to contribute? It's not going to. His argument's not going to contribute anything. Will it persuade anybody of anything? Is not the Christian church large enough to hold within her hospitable fellowship people who differ on points like this and agree to differ until the fuller truth be manifested? The fundamentalists say not. They say the liberals must go. Well, if the fundamentalists should succeed, then out of the Christian church would go some of the best Christians, best Christian life and consecration of this generation. Multitudes of men and women, devout and reverent Christians who need the church and whom the church needs. So he's like, if the fundamentalists get their way, they're throwing out some of the best Christians this the world has ever seen. So how dare they do that? He wants, he doesn't want there to be, um, He wants there to be tolerance. He doesn't want there to be intolerance. He doesn't want there to be, uh, to to throw anyone out. His argument, Fosdick's argument in 1922 was, hey, we, we should all be able to remain within the Christian church and define Christianity in our own way. You define Christianity as having to believe in the virgin birth. You define Jesus as being virgin born. Fosdick's argument is we don't have to define Christianity that way, and we don't have to define Jesus that way, and we should all be able to get along. And the fundamentalist was like, You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. Right? Now, he considers here, consider another matter on which there is a sincere difference of opinion between evangelical Christians. So he just, so he basically just made an argument that you don't have to believe in the virgin birth. Now he's going to move to the inspiration of the Bible. One point of view is that the original documents of Scripture were inerrantly dictated by God to men. Whether we deal with the story of creation or the list of the Dukes of Edom, or the narrative of Solomon's reign, or the Sermon on the Mount, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, they all came in the same way, and they all came as no other book ever came. He's like, that. that's what some people believe, that, hey, the Bible is the result of, well, it's God-breathed, it's inspired. No matter what section, it's all God-breathed. That's the fundamentalist position. Fosdick obviously doesn't hold to that position. And this is what he's going to say. Well, he's going to continue to give the fundamentalist view. They would say they were inerrantly dictated. Everything there, scientific opinions, medical theories, historical judgments, as well as spiritual insight is infallible. That is one idea of the Bible's inspiration, but side by side with those who hold it. Lovers of the book as much as they as they are multitudes of people who, who never think about the Bible. So, indeed, that static and mechanical theory of inspiration seems to them a positive peril to the spiritual life. All right, so he said, once again, he's describing people who hold the other views as being... Lovers of God and, and that, that they're, they're wonderful people. So he's like, hey, these, these people who don't hold to that view of inspiration, they love the Bible just as much as the people who do. And, but they think that this view of inspiration is actually creates danger to one's spiritual life. Here's what he says. Here in the Christian church today are these two groups. And the question which the fundamentalists have raised to this, shall one of them drive the other out? So in every and for everything he's going to mention, for everything he's going to mention, he's going to bring this question up. The fundamentalists want to drive people out. The fundamentalists want to drive people out. Give me one second. I'm going to take a drink of water. All right, there we go. I have to maintain my voice or I can't do, well, an audio podcast, right? Here we go. So the fundamentalists keep saying, we should drive them out. We should drive them out. We should drive them out. And Fosdick just keeps saying, that's so intolerant. That's so illiberal. That's just, it's so unloving. He, he hasn't really used that word yet, but that's the idea. And the question comes down to it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. No, Christianity has to have a clear definition the, the faith was once delivered unto the saints. We have to define what it is. And we have to, def- and by defining what it is, we are declaring what it isn't. And there isn't room for what it is and what it isn't. And all of it called Christianity. Christianity has to be defined. He's, in a sense, trying to allow a, a wide range of definitions. And they all somehow be accepted. Um, he goes on to say, and, and this is Bosdick raising this question. Do we think the cause of Jesus Christ will be furthered by that? So he's like, hey, do you think we're really gonna further the cause of Christ by throwing people out who disagree with the Bible being inspired or with the virgin birth? He goes on, "If speaking of Jesus, if he should walk through the ranks of this congregation this morning, can we imagine him claiming as his own those who hold one idea of inspiration and sending from him into outer darkness those who hold another you cannot fit the lord christ into the fundamentalist mold the church would be would better the church would better judge his judgment we're in the middle West, in the Middle West, the fundamentalists have had their way in some communities, and a Christian minister tells us the consequences. He says that the educated people are looking for their religion outside the churches. So he's like, hey, here's the problem with the fundamentalist approach. It drives people outside of the churches, and it's not consistent with the spirit of Jesus. And educated people, please know how he says this, educated people, are now looking for their religion outside of the church. Educated people are being pushed outside of the church because educated people obviously are not going to hold to that view of inspiration or to the historical uh, fact of the virgin birth. Fosdick is making an argument that you're dividing the church between the educated and the uneducated. The uneducated, according to Fosdick, really are going to be the simple people dare I say, dumb people are going to be like, yep, believe Jesus is born of a virgin and believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And Fosdick is like, uh, educated people can't tolerate that. So, but he's blaming the fundamentalist. So they have to leave the church because the fundamentalists are taking over the churches. But what he's arguing is Christianity is big enough that they, they should be able to go right across the street and find the the liberal church that says, hey, we don't believe all those things. And the fundamentalists should not be able to say those people across the street are not Christians. The fundamentalists should just say they're brothers brothers and sisters in the Lord. They just don't hold to the same doctrine that we do. And so Fosdick seems very bothered that the fundamentalists are like, that's not Christianity. He doesn't seem to like that. So now he goes from the virgin birth to inspiration. He's going to go to a third one. Here we go consider another matter upon which there is serious and sincere difference of opinion between evangelical Christians and this is the second coming of our Lord. The second coming was the early Christian uh, phrasing of hope. no one in the ancient world had ever thought as we do of a develop of a development progress, gradual change as God's way of working out his will in human life and institutions. They thought of human history as a series of ages succeeding one another with abrupt suddenness. The the Greco-Roman world gave the names of metals to, uh, to the ages, gold, silver, bronze, iron. The Hebrews had their ages too, the original paradise in which man began, the cursed world in which man now lives, the blessed messianic kingdom someday suddenly to appear on the clouds of heaven. It was the Hebrew way of expressing hope for the victory of God and righteousness. When the Christians came, they took over that phrasing of expect- ex- expect- being expectant. All right, ex- expectancy. If I can say the word right, um, and uh, and the New Testament is aglow with it. The preaching of the apostles thrills with the glad announcement: Christ is coming. So, like, so the Hebrew, ha- the Hebrews, according to F- Fosdick. Had this idea, which was different than the Greco-Roman world, which gave their ages names like gold, silver, and bronze. The Hebrews they had these same ages, but they they had the original paradise, uh, which man began, the cursed world in which man now lives, and the blessed messianic kingdom that would someday suddenly appear. It was the Hebrew way of expressing hope for the victory of God and righteousness. The Christians took over that phrasing, right? They wanted this idea of being expectant, right? Having this expectancy that Christ was going to return. And he says the New Testament is aglow with it. The preaching of the apostles thrills with the glad announcement, Christ is coming. In the the evangelical churches today, there are differing views of this matter. One view is that Christ is literally coming externally on the clouds of heaven to set up his kingdom here. I never heard that teaching in my youth at all. It was always, uh, it was, it has always had a new resurrection when desperate circumstances came and man's only hope seemed to lie in divine intervention. So according to Fosdick, he never heard this teaching growing up that Christ was literally going to come on the clouds. He never heard that teaching, ever. He says what he always heard is that that it was spoken of as a new resurrection when desperate circumstances came, and man's only hope seemed to lie in divine intervention, that, that the real hope was a new, like some kind of a new resurrection experience whenever your circumstances got really bad. It is not strange, then, that during these chaotic, ca- catastrophic years, there's been a fresh rebirth of this old phrasing of expectancy. Christ is coming seems to many Christians the central message of the gospel. And the strength of it, some of them are doing great service for the world. But unhappily, many are so overemphasizing it that they outdo anything the ancient Hebrews or the ancient Christians ever did. They sit still and do nothing and expect the world to grow worse and worse until he comes. So he doesn't like these people going, Jesus is going to come back. So we're just, and and of course, it's always, I think in some ways it creates a straw man. Now, just please note, everyone plays this game. If you don't like that view of of eschatology, you say, well, that that view of eschatology is going to lead people not to do anything. And our view of eschatology will will lead people to work. And same thing happens when you get into a discussion about libertarian free will and the doctrine of election. Election creates a situation where people will not witness. It's always like, Your doctrine is going to lead to something bad. And usually they never have any actual statistical proof to prove that because a lot of times the people who clearly believe in libertarian free will, well, they're not doing any more evangelism than the people who were. So sometimes, you know, yeah, people always love to create those, those situations. But he's trying to say that this teaching of Christ literally coming back was not the early teaching, wasn't even the teaching of his youth. I don't know what churches he went to when he was young. Now, the question is, We could could we go back in church history and speak of Christ literally returning? Again, I could just go back to Acts 1 we read in the last hour. He's coming back in the same way he departed. That's, that's right there in the Bible. So, I, I don't know what church you went to when you were young, but did you read Acts chapter 1? I mean, does, did that not give you like some kind of an idea? Hmm, that seems to refer to Christ coming back. I, I don't know. Uh, he says side by side with these two whom the second coming is a literal expectation another group exists in the evangelical church they say Christ is coming they say it is with all they say it with all their hearts but they are not thinking of an external arrival on the clouds they have assimilated as part of the divine revelation the exhilarating insight which these recent generations have given to us that development is god's way of working out his will so there's others saying Christ is coming, but not, exter- not with an external arrival of the clouds. That Christ is coming through development and working out his will. That's a very interesting, I don't know exactly what he's trying to articulate there. He continues, and these Christians, when they say that Christ is coming— Mean that slowly it may be, but surely his will and principle will be worked out by God's grace in human life and institutions until he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. So, so he says. There's another group saying how this is how it's going to happen. Christ is going to come, but it's going to come because he is uh, slowly but surely his will and principle is going to be worked out by God's grace in human life and institutions. So it's God's will is going to be worked out more and more within human institutions. And finally, his soul is going to be satisfied. And then that will bring everything to an end. So the way Christ is coming is through his will being worked out in this world. Well, that was preached on May the 21st, 1922. Here we are in 2022. I don't think God's will is any closer to being worked out on this planet. No way, no how things have gotten worse and worse and worse. So his hope that that's the way it was going to work, it hasn't happened. And I know there's still people out there who try to believe that that's the way it's going to work, but it just doesn't. Now he goes on to say, these two groups exist in the Christian church. And the question raised by the fundamentalist is, shall one of them drive the other out? Will they get us anywhere? Will that get us anywhere? Multitudes of young men and women at this season of the year are graduating from schools of learning, thousands of them Christians who may make us older ones ashamed by their sincerity of their devotion to God's will on earth. They are not thinking in ancient terms. They leave ideas of progress out. They cannot think in those terms. They could be no greater... Tra- okay, let me read this again. Um. So they got these young people who are graduating uh, who, who make the older ones ashamed because of... Uh, because of their devotion to God's will on earth. They are not thinking in ancient terms that leave ideas of progress out. They cannot think in those terms. So he says, these young people are not thinking in ancient terms that leaves the idea of progress out. No, these young people are thinking in ideas of progress, of change, of new ideas, of new knowledge. There could be no greater tragedy that the fundamentalists should shut the door of the Christian fellowship against such. Hey, look at these young people. Look at how committed they are to God, but they're not committed to the ancient way. They're committed to a new progressive way. And, well, the fundamentalists are trying to keep them out. He goes on to say, I do not believe for one moment that the fundamentalists are going to succeed. Nobody's intolerance can contribute anything to the solution of the situation which we have described. If then the fundamentalists have no solution of the problem, where may we expect to find it? In two concluding comments, let us consider our reply to that inquiry. So he gives us these different doctrinal issues uh, the inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, and the second coming. He makes it very clear that within the church, there's people who do not hold to the virgin birth being a historical fact, who do not hold that the Bible is the inspired inspired, infallible word of God and who do not believe Christ is going to return in a literal way on the clouds. There are people in the church who don't believe those things and they should not be thrown out. They, should, they, they can define Christianity any way they want and their definition is just as accurate as the fundamentalist definition. And the fundamentalists are wrong to throw them out because those people are godly and devoted and they should not be rejected. So really you can have two competing definitions of Christianity and we should not throw anyone out is Fosdick's argument. And he's like, we've got all of these young people and they don't think in those ancient ways. They think in a new progressive way. And the fundamentalist wants to throw them out and and, and fundamentalism will not succeed. I mean, he was very dogmatic. They're not going to succeed because their intolerance doesn't contribute anything to the, uh, anything to the solution of the situation. So he's going to say, uh, if the fundamentalists have no solution, then where should we expect to find it? Here we go. This is what he's going to point to. Number one, the first element that is necessary is a spirit of tolerance and Christian liberty. So he says, what we need in this time of great division within the church, is we need tolerance and Christian liberty. But now, tolerance and Christian liberty is now being applied, listen, to doctrinal and theological positions. In other words, I need tolerance and and allow for Christian liberty when you decide, nope, don't believe in the virgin birth. Nope, don't believe the Bible's the inspired word of God. Nope, don't believe Jesus is going to return as described in Acts chapter 1. okay. So I'm supposed to say, well, that's Christian liberty, and I'm going to be tolerant, and you can stay within the church, and so you can define Christianity your way, I'll define it my way, and we'll have two competing definitions of Christianity, but somehow we're both okay. That's what Fosdick is arguing for on May the 21st, 1922. He goes on to say, when will the world learn that intolerance solves no problems? This is not a lesson which the fundamentalists alone need to learn. The liberals also need to learn it. Speaking as I do from the viewpoint of liberal opinions, let me say that if some young fresh mind here this morning is holding new ideas, has fought his way through it, has fought his way through it, uh, it let me read this again, has fought his way through, it may be by intellectual and spiritual struggle to novel positions and is tempted to be intolerant about old opinions, offensively to condescend to those who hold them and to be harsh in judgment on them. He may well remember that people who held those old opinions has given the world some of the noblest characters and the most memorable service that it ever has been blessed with, and that and that we are of the younger generation will prove our case best, not by controversial intolerance, but by producing with our new opinions something of the depth and strength and nobility and beauty of the character that in other times were associated with other thoughts. It was a wise liberal, that most adventurous man of his day, Paul the Apostle, who said, knowledge puffeth up, but love buildeth up. All right, so what he says here, all right, I know that's a lot to read, and I apologize if I've read it too fast, but I'm trying to break it down as best as I can. Um, it would be much better to review audio of this, but that's okay. Um, obviously, we don't have audio from May the tw- 21st, 1922 of this sermon, but okay, here we go. Listen carefully. What he is saying is that, hey, we need liberal intolerance. And even liberals need to understand this because sometimes there's these young liberals who've really thought these things through and because they've thought and thought these things through, they look at the people who hold to these older opinions and they're like, How They're not tolerant of them. You're wrong. You old people are wrong. You're confused. And what Fosdick is saying, whoa, whoa, slow down, slow down. Some of these people who hold to these old views, they've done great service and they love God. So be tolerant. He's calling for tolerance on every side. Basically, he's saying everyone should be able to believe what they want. And we should all be able to get along. We should all be able to sing Kumbaya. We should all be able to drink a Coke and have a smile. I'm not saying he would be saying drink a Coke and have a smile in 1922, but you get the the spirit of what he's saying. And on one hand, it sounds so good. It does. Hey, you believe what you want. I believe what I want. You define Christianity your way. I'll define Christianity my way. And we'll still get along. We'll still be in perfect fellowship with one another. But that's never been the way it's been throughout the history of Christianity. Again, go back to the seven ecumenical councils. Believe this or you are anathema believe this or you are anathema that's the way Christianity worked from the very early even at the even in, in a sense the council of Jerusalem in acts 15 they were still saying this is what they have to do this is what they don't have to they were making definition Paul going through in, in in the New Testament he's writing to church after church saying that's wrong that's wrong that's not a gospel that's a false gospel and that false gospel anyone who holds that false gospel will preach that gospel is anathema I mean it's Jude contending for the faith, calling out false teachers. I mean, the the New Testament is filled with this condemning and defining and saying what is right and saying what is wrong. So I don't know why Fosdick in 1922 is like, hey, guys, we don't need to be so intolerant. The fundamentalists have it wrong. And hey, even you liberals, don't be intolerant. And here's what I think, and I'm just going to throw this in now. Here's what always happens. When you are in the minority opinion, and this is just something to do with, I think, our sinful nature, it just seems to me this is the way it works throughout history. So let's say the fundamentalist, the conservative opinion in 1922 would have been the dominant opinion. I think that that's a very fair and accurate way of describing Christianity in 1922. It would have been more the conservative fundamentalist way that would have held the majority opinion. So Fosdick is coming at it from a minority opinion right? He's coming at it like, hey, he's the liberal. He's he, These are these people holding these new progressive ideas. And so what, what always happens is, 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 hey, when you're in the minority position, we want tolerance. We want you, You've got to accept us. You, can, you can't condemn our theology. You've got to accept us, right? But here's what happens. When the minority becomes the majority, they will then define Christianity their way and condemn everyone else. It always works that way. When the, mi- the minority who cries for tolerance, once they begin to gain strength, they will demonstrate the same intolerance that the side that they were fighting against held towards them. It's just It just works. Because whenever you begin to gra- gain that power, you want control. And you're going to define, well, the things the way you think they are. Right? Well, look, we're, we're getting close to the end. Nevertheless, back to the sermon. Fosdick, May 21st, 1922, New York City. Here we go. It is true that just now the fundamentalists are giving us one of the worst exhibitions of bitter intolerance that the church of the country has ever seen. As one watches them and listens to them, he remembers the remark of General Armstrong of the Hampton Institute, right? Cantankerousness is worse than heterodoxy, right? So he says, cantankerousness is worse than heterodoxy. Right. In other words, he's saying that if you're cantankerous, that is far worse than having the right teaching or the right doctrine. All right, maybe. Uh, there are many opinions in the field of modern controversy concerning which I am sure whether they are right or wrong, but there is one thing I'm sure of. Courtesy and, and kindliness and tolerance and humility and fairness are right. Opinions may be mistake, mistaken. Love never is. Now that sounds so good, and there is some, uh, there is an element of biblical truth to this. When we're when we're fighting and taking a stand, we have to show love, joy, peace, and long suffering. We shouldn't just show cantankerousness and our orthodoxy. All right, and our and our and uh, our correct doctrine. We have to show love, even to our enemy. That is absolutely true. I completely agree with Fosdick here, that so many times those in the fundamentalist camp just become condescending, arrogant jerks who condemn everyone. There's no love. There seems to be no joy, no no kindness at all. They're just jerks. And that, that should have been always condemned, and we must condemn it in 2022, as it was condemned in 1922. However, while we must show love, we can't show tolerance to heresy. We can't show tolerance to false doctrine. We have to stand against it. But in standing against it, we have to still show love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, all of those kinds of things. Right? I think it's very important. He continues. As I plead thus for an intellectual, hospitable, tolerant, liberty-loving church, I am, of course, thinking primarily about the new generation. We have boys and girls growing up in our homes and schools, and because we love them, we may well wonder about the church which will be waiting to receive them. Now, the worst kind of church that can possibly be offered to the uh, allegiance of the new generation is an intolerant church. Ministers often bewail the fact that young people turn from religion To science for the regulative ideas of their lives, but this is easily explicable. Science treats a young man's mind as though it was really important. A scientist says to a young man, here is the universe challenging our investigation. Here are the truths which we have seen so far. Come study with us. See what we already have seen and then look further to see more for science is an intellectual adventure for the truth. Now, let me stop right here. I don't know what Fosdick saw in 1922, but in many ways, Fosdick is almost a little prophetic here because he describes this is how science works, meaning the church isn't like this. And sadly, I feel many of churches today don't have that spirit. The church, Christian podcast, all of us should have a spirit where we treat someone's mind as it's really important. All right, now he's going to say science. I'm going to replace science here. This is what the church should say to a young man, to a young woman, to anyone. Here is the word of God challenging our investigation. I'm going to change this completely. This is the way it should have been. This is how the fundamentalists should have been handling. This is how Christians in every generation. Here's the word of God. It challenges us to investigate it. It challenges us to question it. It challenges us to study it. It challenges us to try to figure it out. He says, science says, hey, here's the universe and it challenges our investigation. Here is here are the truths which we have seen so far. Come study with us. What we say is here is the word of God. It is true. We're still trying to figure it out. Come and study with us. That should be the spirit of Christianity in every generation. All right. See see what we already have seen and look further to see more. And what we should hey here's what we think we know. But hey, you look and see what you can find. We should do that he goes uh and look and he says uh see what we already have seen and then look further to see more for science is an intellectual adventure for the truth Christianity should be an intellectual adventure for the truth because we are to love God with our mind he's given us a mind we, we are to we are to challenge and think and study, but he's saying the church basically didn't do this, and so science became more attractive to the young people in 1922. He goes on to say, "...can you imagine any man who is worthwhile turning from that call to the church, if the church seems to say, come and we will feed you opinions from a spoon, no thinking is allowed here except such to bring you to certain specified predetermined conclusions." These prescribed opinions we will give you in advance of your thinking. Now think, but only as to reach these results. So he basically says the church is like, you can't question, you can't challenge. You just got to accept what we tell you. Now, again, on one hand, I understand. This is where you got to find the balance. You, we should completely welcome that intellectual curiosity, And we should approach the Bible with study and let's figure it out. Too many sermons are preached like, here's what the text means. And I'm just going to feed it to you in a spoon instead of saying, hey, let's try to figure out what this text means. And I like to preach like, let's try to figure this out. And we may stumble, and we may fall, and we may we may have difficulties. But we're gonna—that's the way I'm going to preach. Where most are like, "Here's three points, and this is what it means." And you're like, "You do realize there's like 50 different interpretations of that passage? Why are you feeding me with a spoon? Uh, let's let's dig in and figure this out." But Christianity does have to have a line in the sand, saying, "This is Christianity." Once we cross that line, we can cross that line, questioning and thinking. But we have to remain on one side of that line or we leave biblical Christianity. So on one hand, I agree with him, but he takes it obviously too far. He continues. He's almost done. My friends, nothing in all the world is so much worth thinking of as God. Christ, the Bible, sin and salvation, the divine purposes for humankind, life everlasting. But you cannot challenge the dedicated thinking of this generation to those sublime themes upon any such terms as are laid down by an intolerant church. The second element, so he said the first thing we need tolerance, we just need tolerance, but he's taking tolerance to the point of tolerance and Christian liberty means you can just completely redefine Christianity in your way and everyone should be tolerant. He takes it too far. The second element which which is needed if we are to reach a happy solution of this problem is a clear insight into the main issues of modern Christianity and a sense of penitent shame that the Christian church should be quarreling over little matters. Let me read this again. The second element which is needed if we are to reach a happy solution of this problem is a clear insight into the main issues of modern Christianity And a sense of penitent shame that the Christian church should be quarreling over little matters when the world is dying of great needs. So here's this once again where, okay, who gets to define what is a little matter? And who gets to define what is a great matter? And it always goes to this idea. You're over here fighting about this doctrine. Well, there is a world dying of great needs people do this nonsense all the time. It it just, it drives me crazy. Um, Here's an example. I don't remember what year it occurred, but it was some, there was some big issue with Chick-fil-A and I guess liberals or homosexuals were upset with Chick-fil-A. And so then all the Christians decided that I guess on a particular day, everyone was going to go to Chick-fil-A and buy a chicken sandwich because that was going to show the homosexuals. We were going to take a stand, right? So my daughter was kind of like, she had posted something on the internet was along the lines like, Really? So we're gonna we're gonna make Chick-fil-A millions and millions and millions of dollars by all going to buy chicken sandwiches, and this is the great cause. And she's like she just thought the whole thing was ridiculous. And then someone, a grown man, who had never interacted with my daughter one time on social media, a Christian man, never even bothered to to have any words with her who knows our phone number, could have called, could have even talked to her, oh wait, at our church, decided to get onto his wife's Facebook account to basically attack my daughter to say, well, you're sitting here worrying about Chick-fil-A, there's people dying going to hell. Why are you out there witnessing to them? So my daughter responded, hey, there's people out there dying going to hell. Why are you wasting time getting on your wife's Facebook account to argue with me about Chick-fil-A? <laughs> okay Which... Yeah. Why is it? Why is it? Why is it? Uh, uh, she was a teenager, a, a young teenager. Why is a grown man going like, Hey, why don't you leave the teenager alone and just back off, buddy? Why don't you just back off? You know, if you have a problem, why don't you call me? Okay. Yeah, the whole thing was so, so irritating. It was so irritating. And it was so ridiculous because they couldn't see the how how stupid it looked. But Christians always love this argument. You're over here fighting about this doctrine. There's people starving. There's people that, well, you're, I said, are you worrying about what I'm doing? Don't worry about me. Don't take five minutes to tell. You go feed the hungry. You go out and fix the problem. It's always like the ace up the sleeve. Well, you're sitting here arguing about theology. We should be out there doing. Well, don't tell me. Go do it. Don't tell me. Go do it. Go go fix it. So he's, he's saying the same thing. He's, we should feel bad about fighting over little matters when the world is dying of great needs. But again, who gets to say what's a little matter? Who gets to say what's insignificant? I guess in his mind, little matters, now this is really what he's saying in the context of his sermon in, in, on May the 21st, 1922. Guess what the little matters are? The virgin birth of Christ. Guess what a little matter is? The, the inspiration and infallibility of scripture. Guess what a little matter is? The physical bodily return of Jesus Christ. Why does he get to say they're little matters? Why does Fosdick's definition of a little matter become the dogma which I must abide by? He goes, if during the war, when the nations were wrestling upon the very brink of hell and at times all seemed lost, you chanced to hear two men in an an altercation about some minor matter of sectarian denominationalism. Could you restrain your indignation, you said? What can you do with folks like this who in the face of colossal issues play with tiddlywinks and uh, and peccadillos of religion, so he's saying that during the war you wouldn't see people fighting over these things because well the world was in a was in a mess. So what can you do with people like this? So now, when from so now when from the terrific questions of this generation one is called away by the noise of this fundamentalist controversy, he thinks it almost unforgivable that men should tithe mint. Uh, and come in and quarrel over them when the world is perishing for the lack of the weightier matters of law, justice, mercy, and faith. Again, once again, it's the same old, tired, I mean, the argument's nothing new. Hey, I don't think we should be fighting about these issues because look at the problems over there. But what is he doing during his sermon? Isn't he fighting over these issues? (laughs) Right? He's, isn't he? And he's taking his sermon on that Sunday morning. I think it's a Sunday morning, May the twenty first, nineteen twenty two, to fight over. Hey, we shouldn't be fighting over these. Well, what are you doing? You don't think your sermon's going to create controversy? You don't think your sermon's going to require a response? So you can't say we shouldn't be fighting over these issues when you're fighting over the issues. <laughs> the present world situation smells to heaven. And now, in the presence of colossal problems, which must be solved, in Christ's name and for Christ's sake, the fundamentalists propose to drive out from the Christian church all the consecrated souls who do not agree with their theory of inspiration. What immeasurable folly. Well, they are not going to do it, certainly not in this vicinity. I do not even know in this congregation whether anybody has been tempted to be a fundamentalist. Never in this church have I caught one accent of intolerance. God keep us away, always so, in ever increasing areas of the Christian fellowship, intellectually, hospitably, open minded, liberty loving, fair, tolerant, not with the tolerance of indifference, as though we did not care about the faith, but because always our major emphasis is upon the weightier matters of the law. And that was the sermon preached by Fosdick, May the 21st, 1920 two. And I'm reading that from a Kindle version that I found on Amazon for like a dollar. All right, there you go. Or 56 minutes. I do apologize if I stumbled over some words. Expectancy. Expectancy. I don't know why I had problems with that word. There was another word there. Heter, heterox, heter, heter, heterodoxy. I think I said that one incorrectly. Heterodoxy. Yeah, I'm almost sure uh, that I said that went incorrect but I apologize if I mess that up. And just so that you know, let me look it up here. Um, I want to give you the actual definition of heterodoxy. Uh, okay, heterodoxy is deviation from accepted or orthodox standards or beliefs. All right, I think I read it as... Um, Orthodoxy. I think I read it as orthodoxy, which heterodoxy is actually the opposite of orthodoxy. Let me go back just to to clarify. Let's see if I can find that line in the sermon. Let me see if I can find it where I can uh, where we can read that correctly. Now that I'm thinking about it, um, he, he's talking about contemperousness versus heterodoxy. So I think what he is saying here, if I can find it, give me one second. It shouldn't take long to find it. Uh, No, it won't be there. Okay, here. Okay, so he talks about uh, tolerance. Uh, Yeah, um, he goes, so I'm going to read this paragraph again. Nevertheless, it is true that just now the fundamentalists are giving us one of the worst exhibitions of bitter intolerance that the church of this country has ever seen. As one watches them and listens to them, he remembers the remark of General Armstrong of Hampton Institute. Cantankerousness is worse than heterodoxy. So in other words, to be cantankerous is far worse than deviating from orthodoxy. I, I completely misread that. I said cantankerousness is worse than orthodoxy. In other words, I made it like sound like hey, it's it's far worse to be um uh, to be cantankerous than to have right doctrine. Okay. What he's saying is, hey, you know what's worse? People. Fundamentalists are fighting over, over heterodoxy. They're fighting fighting over what is true doctrine. That, that's what they're fighting over. But you know what? It would be better to deviate from true doctrine than being cantankerous. So he's saying being cantankerous is far worse than deviating from true doctrine. That is what uh, Fosdick was saying on May the 21st, 1922. I apologize there. I I completely read that incorrectly, but I'm glad that I remembered it. And gave the right definition of heterodoxy there. And I think I just received a message from someone. No, I did not. I received a notification. Um, okay. From one of my apps. All right, we'll stop right there. I do apologize for that, but I'm glad I corrected, corrected it. I don't know why when I read it, cantankerousness is worse than heterodoxy. In my mind, I was like, cantankerousness is than worse than orthodoxy. So I was reading like that. What what Fosdick was saying is it's it's far worse to be, uh, cantankerous than it is to be orth, to be orthodox in your doctrine. That doesn't even make sense. So I don't know why I said it that way. But cantankerousness is worse than heterodoxy. So according to what Fosdick meant, what he viewed it as is hey, you know what? It's better for us to be tolerant and loving and compassionate than it is. To have right doctrine. In other words, if we deviate from doctrine, who cares? uh, As long as we're not cantankerous. Cantankerous. What a word! You talk about a dated word. Cantankerousness. What a word. Cantankerousness. I'm gonna have to find a way to use that today. You're being cantankerous. I don't even think I've ever used that word in my life. All right. Cantankerousness. It's like uh, you're cantankerous. Is is that even? Yeah. I don't. But there you go. I, I think I was so caught off guard by the cantankerousness that I completely. Uh, messed up the heterodoxy. So, but there you go. It's heterodoxy, orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right doctrine. Heterodoxy is uh, basically, um, how is it defined again? uh, uh, Deviation from accepted uh, orthodox standards of beliefs. So, heterodoxy is a deviation from orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right doctrine. So you want to be orthodox, not heterodox. There you go. I mean, you probably all, you all knew that. So some of you are probably doing this. You're like, about time you caught your stupid mistake, but you made about 10 others. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, I just, it, it caught me. The cantankerousness caught me off guard. But now, now we fixed it. All right, there you go. One hour. So we spent two hours today in 1922 two hours in 1922. Oh, there's so much we could, we could uh, talk about there, but I'll just leave it there. I'll just leave it there, and you can tell me what you think about the sermon, about its historical implications. There's articles all over the place today about the sermon. So what I wanted to do, instead of you reading articles about people telling you about the sermon, I wanted to read the whole sermon to you. As imperfectly as I may have read it, you've now heard it, and now you have the historical context to maybe have a conversation about it. Thanks for listening. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. God bless.